the middle of the week and plenty going on on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Being singled out going to school as the illegitimate child in the oh, class. Ross. You know, you'd be getting a note to bring home. The, you know, the teacher would say, bring that home to your parents. But I was always singled out as, and you bring that to your guardian. How long were you in? Are you under the six months or over the six months? I'm under the six months by about two weeks. So you don't, you don't, you're, you're not recognised as far as. So this, no, you don't no. exist as far as the scheme. I don't exist. It's just very surreal because you're at home, you know, in your pajamas, thinking, what does Jerry Halliwell think about sound design, and that's your job for the morning. And we'll start in the afternoon on the Live Line and the Mother and Baby Homes Redress Scheme. We started on Monday here in the programme. That was the a significant number of uh, women who contacted us, and indeed men, about the decision of the government to exclude children uh, who lived in a mother and baby home for under six months from this uh, redress scheme which they've announced. The redress scheme, as they said in their uh, press release, will cost this 34,000 uh, survivors. Uh, they'd be eligible uh, for financial payments and 19,000 will be eligible for, <laughs> excuse me, for enhanced medical card. This is a cost of 800 million. Now, when you look at the rates, uh, that it, 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 it's a quantum on each. If you were if you were in a mother and baby home and you were a mother and you were there for less than three months, you're entitled to 5,000 um, uh, and 5,000 end of, that's it. If you're there between three and six months, it was 10,000. And then, for example, if you're there for five years, six years, 40,000, 45,000 or whatever. But the category that we were contacted by were mothers uh, who had uh, children uh, and the children were adopted invariably out of the mother and baby home. It was called homes, remember? Awful phrase, home for unmarried mothers. Unmarried mothers, good God. Um, and if your child was uh, adopted, normally, as you heard, against your will, sometimes even without your knowledge, was adopted out of the mother and baby home and was under six months, they weren't even entitled to apply. They weren't recognised as such. And that caused a lot of a lot of distress. Now, given that the figure for mothers who were in a mother and baby home for less than six months is a maximum of €10,000. And given that the figure... Um, the number of people we are told uh, would be eligible for this, then not necessarily the number of people who apply. Some people might not know they're in a mother and baby home, for example, uh, would be 24,000. That would in total come to 2.4 million. Whereas it was a government, now maybe we'll get the full in, but a government uh, representative was quoted on uh, (coughs) television a few weeks ago saying, if we include... The children who were there for less than six months, this will double the cost of the scheme from 80 million, sorry, from 800 million, my mistake, from 800 million to 1.6 billion. I don't know how they compute that figure. Deborah, Deborah, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. What was your situation, Deborah? I was in the Good Shepherd Convent in Dunboyne. Okay. In 1979, I was there from March till my baby was due the end of June, and I was, went into Hollis Street then, and I had my daughter, beautiful daughter. Okay. And she was, I was just told then after five days of being in there that she was gone. I, the matron just came in and said, your baby is now going. Okay. And I went, going where? Yeah, yeah. 
because in my I was so naive and you know young and mm-hmm. I, I I was born to be a mother, Joe. That was the bottom line. I was born to be a mammy, and it was the most traumatic time in my whole entire life. Is handing my baby over. And you make the point, which so many people did, it's not about the money per se. No, it's, it's about not. It's about the yeah. fact that any child that was in a mother and baby home that was taken and adopted uh, or removed or whatever from the, the birth mother uh, under six months, they don't exist as far as the scheme is, is concerned. They were never in that mother and baby home. No, and on the, I, re- I was reading through the forms and all that the government have up on their website. Mm-hmm. And like, if, for me, if I was to go and apply for that, Joe, I've got to prove I was in the mother and baby home. Yeah. Like, how the hell can I prove I was in a mother and baby home when we went in there and we couldn't even use our own names? Very good point. Or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, you were assigned a new name invariably. We were always just put in there and that was it. I yeah. was told that if I kept my baby, I could never come home again. And when you say you were born to be a mother, Deborah, do you know where your your, your baby is now? In uh, my daughter found me in twenty eleven. Okay. And um, we have actually a great relationship, brilliant. and she brilliant. only lived twenty minutes away from me. Okay, brilliant. Deborah, there. Then Sean called Joe with his story. Joe, yes, um, I was born in Castle Pollard in County Westmeath, yeah. and I spent just under three months there. And from there, I was transferred to St. Patrick's, um, from where I was originally fostered out okay. uh, to a couple. And they uh, decided to take me off to South Africa. Nice. So I actually turned two on the ship going over to South Africa. Um, I only found out in 2014, after mm. my adoptive mother had passed away that um, the whole thing had been done illegally which was quite a shock when you think that I was 54 years of age at the time so from 2014 up to the present just to put it into a nutshell um, I couldn't get any information out of anybody and it cost me a couple of trips out to Ireland Okay. with a lot of help from a Facebook group that I joined, the Castle Pollard Mother and Baby Brilliant. Home Facebook Brilliant, yeah. group, um, who their chairperson is Paul Redmond, um, and he's the author of the book Adoption Stories. But uh, Paul was a great help. Um, then I was also given a lot of advice and assistance by Sharon Lawless from the series Adoption Stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, and through all this and the couple of trips backwards and forth, I suddenly discovered I had two, two half brothers here. Um, and that was another shock. And I found it very, very unsettling at the time. And it culminated in me deciding to come back to Ireland. So I returned in 2017. Okay. Um, and I've been back for five years now. Um, another um, driving force for me was the whole release of the concept or the publication of the concept of the co- commission of in, in, into the mother and baby yeah, homes. Yeah. Um, and I felt very strongly at the time that I wanted to be part of that, okay. that I felt that our stories needed to be heard. But 
that apparently was not to be. Um, I did testify to the commission. Um, I submitted my testimony in triplicate, yeah. just from the point of view that I didn't think that on the spur of the moment you could lose track of things. You could yeah, you could course. get caught okay. up in one yeah, subject yeah. and wander off the point. Anyway, I had some interesting documents with me, and um, that was the end of that. The only thing I could say there is that they did try to convince me to give them the originals of the documents, which I flatly refused. Okay. Um, but Sean, to saying, just just in terms yeah. of today's uh, discussion, how long were you? Do you know how long were you in? Castle Ball between the two mother and baby. How long were you in? Are you under the six months or over the six months? I'm under the six months by about two weeks. So you don't, you don't, you're, you're not recognised as far as. So this, no, you don't no. exist as far as the scheme. I don't exist. Well, that's Sean. Then at the end of the program, Rose called Joe, and you can hear the emotions in Rose when she speaks so eloquently about her treatment as a child, even after seventy years. So eloquently put, such an impressive woman. That's Rose on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, if you're noticing the lack of some fruit and veg like tomatoes and peppers in the supermarket, it's because of weather conditions in the Mediterranean. George Mombio was talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. So this was a, a news story here over the last couple of days about the shortage of popular fruit and veg. I know it's happening in the UK as well due to bad mm. weather, as I said. But the question we all start asking ourselves now is about our reliance on imported produce and whether we are just overly reliant on imported produce. Yes, well, it's very striking, isn't it? I was in the supermarket yesterday and the entire section, which normally has tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, all that, completely empty. Everything gone. Same here. And and it really brings, yeah. We're all seeing it, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's very striking and it shows how totally dependent we are on a small part of Spain and a small part of Morocco for almost all those vegetables. Now, that that does introduce a major vulnerability, but... It has to be remembered, you know, those are only particular vegetables. There's all sorts of other stuff coming in from different parts of our own countries and from other parts of the world, which um, means that, you know, we're not going to run out of things to eat. Um, we, we, you know, this is noise rather than signal. But there is a major global problem, and that is that the global food system as a whole is becoming less resilient. And one of the reasons for that is the very long distances over which a lot of that trade takes place, the extreme corporate concentration of that trade. So, for instance, just four corporations control 90% of the global grain trade. And just like with the banks in 2008, that makes the whole system very vulnerable. They become too big to fail. And the, the way in which all those corporations and everyone else in the space is starting to do exactly the same thing and pursue exactly the same strategies. And that always makes a system weak. Mm-hmm. And who, who's at fault here? Because I notice when I'm in the supermarket, I pick up something like spring onions and I ask myself, why am I buying spring onions that are imported from Portugal or broccoli from another part mm. of Europe or further afield and other things that I expect that we can and should be able to grow here in Ireland, maybe at a different time of the year. But I want to feed my mm. family and I want to do it quickly and I want yeah. to do one shop in a week. So it's a difficult balance to strike, isn't it? 
Well, there's nothing innately wrong with imports. And in fact, sometimes imports can be a lot more eco-friendly than trying to produce it in your own country. So for instance, you know, the tomatoes here in England, some of them come from Spain and Morocco. Some of them come from greenhouse greenhouses in this country, which are heated. Now, in some cases, that's with waste heat. And so it's not much of an issue. But in some cases, it's with gas. And that's a huge issue. And and they're, they're far more damaging in climate terms than to the tomatoes which are trucked in from, from Almeria or, or from Morocco, um, where, where the actual transport costs in trucking are far smaller in environmental terms than the environmental costs of heating the greenhouse. And so, so it's not that it's necessarily wrong that they've been imported, but with every kind of food we eat, we should be looking at the likely impacts that that food is having. And some have a much bigger impact than others. In general, animal products have a much higher environmental impact than plant products. Yes, and you've written about this recently in The Guardian, uh, again, on the soaring <clears throat> global demand for animal products for meat, and you're asking what we can <clears throat> do about it. Now, talk to me about whether you believe meat substitutes are the answer. Well, I think they probably are a big part of the answer, just in the same way as wind power or solar power is part of the answer to the problem of fossil fuels. You can't solve the problem of fossil fuels without those alternatives. And I don't think we'll solve the problem of the world's massively growing demand for meat and milk and eggs without alternatives. Um, you, You know, we can urge people to eat less, and we should all, all, of course, be eating less of these products, but that urging doesn't get you very far unless people have got cheap, healthy, readily available substitutes which give them the same degree of satisfaction as those animal products give them. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what the situation is in the UK with this, but here in Ireland, I know internationally, we are constantly trying to sell Irish beef, Irish lamb. There were big efforts made to push Irish lamb in the United States market. So how much responsibility do countries like Ireland and like England have for making this problem worse? Well, yeah, we do have quite a bit of responsibility. I mean, every hectare of land that we use to produce these products is is a hectare which could otherwise be supporting wild ecosystems. And the particular problem with beef and lamb is that they require a very large amount of land. The more land we use for human purposes, the less land there is for nature, the less carbon is sequestered because wild ecosystems are always richer in carbon, despite the ridiculous propaganda of the meat industry always richer in carbon than ecosystems from which we're extracting products. And so the less of this we produce, the less of it we eat, the less of it we sell abroad, the the better the environmental outcomes. And Claire asked George about the lack of snow. I want to talk to you as well about the lack of snow in ski resorts, not from the point of view Mm. of feeling very sorry for the people who are going off on their holidays and don't get to ski down the slopes like they normally would. But there were stunning pictures in The Guardian online, comparisons between last winter and this winter. Plenty of snow, no snow. Now, explain to me what's going on. Well, it is happening at great speed and, in fact, faster than a lot of climate scientists were predicting. We, we, we are seeing very rapid shifts in Earth systems as a, as a result 
of the greenhouse gases which we're pouring into the atmosphere. Now, some of the impacts we weren't expecting to see for another 30 years or so. We weren't expecting to see them until we had two or even three degrees of global heating. But already, you know, we've seen these massive events like the huge floods in Pakistan last year, you know, a third of the country underwater. That, that country is not going to recover. Um, you know, the, the costs of it are so vast and it will continue to be hit by more and more disasters like that. China last year had the biggest heat anomaly anywhere on Earth in recorded history. There's been a whole series of massive events. I mean, we had that huge heat wave in northern Europe, um, but, you know, that was nothing by comparison to what India suffered. Um, so there's, there's a whole series of massive impacts now hitting us which weren't supposed to come this early. And it shows that far from the climate deniers claim that it was all being exaggerated by climate scientists, in fact, it has, it has been understated. The, the, the speed and scale of the impacts caused by global heating. I, I just have a clip that I'd like us to listen to now because last week on the programme we were talking about unseasonal weather sweeping across New Zealand and, and Cyclone Gabriel, which left a number of people dead and lots of people, hundreds displaced. And their climate change minister, James Shaw, made a powerful statement in Parliament. We'll hear some of that now. And I have to say that as I stand here today, I'm, I, I struggle to find words to uh, express um, what I'm thinking and feeling about this uh, particular crisis. I don't think I've ever felt as sad or as angry about the lost decades that we spent bickering and arguing about whether climate change was real or not, whether it was caused by humans or not, whether it was bad or not, whether we should do something about it uh, or not, because it is clearly uh, here now. Uh, and if we do not act, it will get worse. And some would say that that argument, maybe not to the extent that it was happening over the last decade, but it is in, in some cases, it is still ongoing, isn't it? It's come back. Uh, and 20 years ago, we were having the, these arguments and it was just exhausting. These stupid people just saying the earth is flat, in effect, you know, just denying all the scientific evidence. And now it's come back big time with all these YouTube videos, a whole new generation of climate deniers. It's intensely frustrating because if people can't even accept the reality of what is happening, then how can you deal with that? I want to talk to you about the wood burning stoves that you put in the house. And, and I just I noticed that you wrote in The Guardian that it was shame that stopped you from writing about this before. But you went into this project with good intentions. But what did you learn, George? Yeah, so I thought, that, you know, by by heating my house with wood, I was doing the right thing because I was getting myself off gas, uh, which which is damaging with its carbon emissions. But actually, the other forms of pollution caused by wood burning, particularly the small particulates, those tiny little particles in the smoke, are really really damaging to human health. And we now know that um, here in the UK, for instance, though only eight percent of households burn wood, that creates more particulate emissions than all the vehicles on the road. Um, and so, you know, while people like me have been campaigning about pollution from vehicles, I've been contributing to the problem by burning wood. Um, that, that was uh, um, quite a few years ago when 
those those wood burners and um, I'm living in a different place now, but I feel guilty about not having thought it through properly. George Mombio from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty spoke to comedian and writer Grania Maguire about her work on the BAFTA Awards. You know when the, uh, the people come on to present the BAFTAs and the award the winner is, well, those words that they utter come from a little bit of a speech that's prepared. Now, I didn't realise it's not, uh, the little speech isn't prepared by them, it's prepared by somebody else entirely. One of whom is Grania Maguire. Good morning, Grania. Morning. N- nice to talk to you today. Where are you in the world? So I'm in uh, rainy London. Ah, OK, well, you can hold on to the rain, but we do like London an awful lot. What, what part of Ireland are you from? I'm from the Royal County, Navan. Excellent. And tell us... The a, County of Navan. The County of Navan. <laughs> it's now being upgraded, thanks to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your path to London. Well, so I'm a comedian and a comedy writer and mm-hmm. um, do stand up. And then I work on sort of various TV shows over here in London um, and sort of various sort of award shows and things like that. Now, I didn't know. That's how I make the shilling. Uh, I didn't know that, uh, the, that they had hired people to write the, the bits of speech, if you like, for the presenters of the awards, such as the BAFTAs. So can you give us a sense of uh, how that works behind the scenes and how you were given the the, the, the presenters that uh, you were chosen to write for? Yeah, well, so, you know, you watch these award shows and kind of the back of your head, you're thinking, oh, my God, Catherine Zeta-Jones is so eloquent, you know, <laughs> just off the, off the top of her head. She's just, you know, described all these films being nominated. Well, just on the offhand that maybe, you know, Kate Blanchett doesn't have time to describe what she thinks about best sound design on the spot. <laughs> what we do is <laughs> it's just like weeks and weeks beforehand, yeah. you know, these production companies, they put together sort of uh, different introductions for the different awards. And it sort of goes back and forth and back and forth. And then on the on the big night, they it, it all looks seamless. And that's that's my job. So that's where you come hopefully. in. So to tell us, who who did you write your, the introduction speeches for, for, uh, for Sunday night, for example, just going by at the BAFTAs? OK, so it was absolutely nuts. So basically, I wrote all of it. <laughs> I mean, basically, like all the all the whole, all the guests. So you'd Richie Grant. So somebody else wrote his script. OK, but everybody else, it was it was me. And it was completely it's just very surreal because you're at home, you know, in your pajamas thinking, what does Jerry Halliwell think about sound design? And that's your job for the morning trying to figure that out. Did you so have, very surreal. Do you have a list of all the presenters from, say, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Jamie Lee Curtis, etc., uh, and match them to their award? And then you have to write, were you given a time limit, a word limit? Well, so, unfortunately, it's kind of a bit like Tetris. So you go in on, let's say, Monday and you're told, OK, Hugh Grant is presenting Best Director. So you write something for that. And then you go in the next day and you go, OK, now Hugh Grant is presenting Best Film and Brian Cox is presenting Best Director. So you have to, it's constantly, even up sometimes up until the day itself, you're always sort of editing and changing. And then it does have to be, you know, snappy and as succinct as possible. And then, you know, like, because it's a big event, but then it also, it can't be just like people going on stage reading out Wikipedia entries. You have to try and, 
you know, with different awards, try and make some funnier and uh, at least interesting to listen to. And were some of the presenters better than others at delivering your words? Well, it's just it's just so crazy because like like you Jamie Lee Curtis and you're thinking, oh, my God, this is Jamie Lee Curtis. And, you know, it's it's so it's a bit like writing a school play with the best cast in the world because they are so busy. So they don't have time to rehearse. They're flying in. They're doing loads of publicity. So they have they you you sort of stand beside them and of course they don't know who I am you know I'm very low down on the food chain and you just see Jamie Lee Curtis read something that you've written for the very first time she's reading for the very first time and then like two minutes later she's on stage you know being broadcast live just like performing basically a little sketch you wrote and the difference between it just shows like the talent and like the professionalism where I saw her just read that like she'd never seen it before. And then she goes out on stage and it's like this is her 50th performance of it. Mm. Like it's it's a real like it's very, very impressive. And where did you watch it all from? Well, so I so we're in this like little cupboard, like think of Harry Potter's little bedroom under the stairs. And that's where the auto queue is. And so all the presenters come in, they read it and then they head out. And so we were watching it, obviously, backstage. And oh, my God, it was just so fantastic because obviously Banshees of Inisherin mm. were there. And obviously I was very biased and I was just losing my mind like every time because you could hear from the audience, you know, whenever the the nominees are announced or any of the clips are shown. They're huge. Oh, there was such a, so much love for the film and the people involved. So I was, I was, I was having a brilliant night. It was, it was really exciting. And Ryan asked Grania about writing those two-handers. Did you have any of the, those things sometimes when, when two presenters are doing it, like a double act, did you have to kind of write two parts, if you like? Oh, yeah. So we had Brian Cox and Hayley Atwell. Oh. And we had yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis and Anya Taylor-Joy. Oh. Like, it's just, it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's surreal. Because, again, I'm thinking, this is a silly idea that I had in my head in my kitchen. And now Brian Cox is saying it on live television. Yeah. So it's a bit odd. But a, but a, but a joy. And what about your own career? What's the plan? Why do I just really I love like working on shows like that. Like it's yeah. just it's just so exciting because, you know, everybody's on it. They just work so hard. And I know I know people can be a bit sneery about award shows and I know they are ridiculous. But I, you know, people, you know, it really is like they're putting on the best show that they can. And it's a real team sport. So it's so brilliant to be part of and it's so it's like it's weeks and weeks of hard work and then two of the most exciting hours of your life so it's it's definitely worth it so you have to go now because you've got a tube to get where are you going uh, I'm heading into a glamorous Soho uh, to work on the last leg. Oh, that's, so, that's oh, not cool. a bad day at the office okay you'll enjoy that <laughs> Granny Maguire from the Ryan Tupperty Show And on today with Claire Byrne, business journalist Adam McGuire was talking about supermarket loyalty cards. Well, we all love a deal, I suppose. We like a discount or we like money back or the odd freebie. And we also like being on the inside uh, and not missing out, uh, which is why so many loyalty 
programs are called clubs you know they really want to emphasize that point and and loyalty cards really offer all of those things you know the promise of special discounts money back maybe offers that we'll miss out on if we're not in the club uh, and there's also this phenomenon a psychological phenomenon called the endowment progress effect people respond respond well to being given steps to something and a goal at the end so you know a lot of these programs are built around make x amount of transactions or spend x amount and get y in return dopamine and yeah really it taps into that gamified kind of thing that we, we like getting our hit you know and how worthwhile are they in reality, though? I, it's hard to generalise, but I mean, if you look at them in broad terms, they don't really offer us an awful lot. You know, most shops programmes would be built around the idea of you get a point for money you spend. You, you know, usually it's one point for every euro you spend and that point is worth one cent. So in real terms, you're getting 1% back or you're getting a 1% discount. You know, if a retailer announced tomorrow that they were putting a 1% sale across all of their products, I don't <laughs> think people would be banging down the doors to get in. So, you know, not particularly appealing, but maybe slightly better are the ones the cafes offer. A lot of them still work on that, you know, buy nine coffees, get your 10th free or buy 10 coffees, get your 11th free. So that's kind of more in the region of a 10% discount or a 10% uh, refund. You're still though looking at spending maybe, you know, 40, 50 quid to get four or five euro back. So, if you're already spending that money on takeaway coffee, then it's nice to get something back. But you wouldn't be going out of your way to buy coffees or going to the more expensive cafe just to, yeah. to get that deal. I, I have a voucher that's running out today and I'm asking myself, what can I buy in order to get that discount? Like, that's crazy stuff. Yeah, it's no. kind of like we're talking about the free shopping last week. Where it's like you spend more money to get the freebie, so to speak. It's yeah. not really free. Now, um, it's not as straightforward as those examples though, that you've just outlined all, always. Like sometimes it can be a bit confusing as to what exactly is on offer with these loyalty schemes. Yeah, they often layer multiple different things as part of it. So you might get coupons for a particular product that's only valid for, for one week or they might let you build up vouchers to get a discount on special items or you might get entered into a competition every time you use your, your card. Uh, they might let you use your points to, to pay off a utility bill or to buy a product from another company. Another trend that has cropped up really in the last year or so is the linking of sale prices in shops as well to the loyalty system. So where in the past a retailer might have had you know a 20% discount on a certain product or a two for th- a three for two offer or something like that. Now they're only letting you avail of that if you use your your, your uh, loyalty card at the time of the mm-hmm. transaction. Significant um, deals on that one as well, which is just to entice you into the, the scheme, isn't uh, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So why then do retailers want us in the scheme? I suppose, as the name suggests, the original idea was to encourage customer loyalty. Even 30 odd years ago, Superkin was one of the first uh, retailers in Europe to introduce a, a loyalty system. And they Fergal knew... Quinn always knew what he yeah, was at, didn't he? On the ball, actually. And they knew that you know shoppers are, are creatures of habit. So when you came in the door, anything they can do to increase what's called the stickiness, it means that you may end up being a customer for life based on that one experience. So, you know, the likes of the time-limited coupons are a good example of that. Get you in the door, get you in the door more regularly. And we know as well, you go to buy one thing you always end up getting a few other bits while you're in so it's a good way to boost revenue of course if every retailer is offering you loyalty programs then the the draw of them gets a little bit weakened but in the last decade or so they've offered another new advantage because they can tell people tell shops so much now about their customers Mm -hmm. based on their transactions they just get to know us so well through finding out what we're buying because they know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, like I mean, you, when you sign up, you give away your, your name, your address, your date of birth, and, and that will let you build up a demographic. And then they can see, well, you're the type of person who shops once a week or you shop multiple times in the week and you go to this shop all the time. Sometimes you go to this one as well. And, and you know, that builds up a picture. 
And then, of course, you have what's what's in the trolley as and well. And they know that too, don't they? They know that too, yeah. And and this is really the mother load for, for retailers because if, if you imagine someone hand over their weekly shopping receipt to you and you know nothing about them, you'd probably build up a pretty good picture of them very quickly just by looking at what they're buying. You know, you're obviously going to see the brands that they like that they tend to come back to. But, you know, you might know, for example, very quickly, well, there's a baby in the house because they're buying nappies every week. And you probably make a good guess at what age the baby is based on the, the size of the nappy mm-hmm. if you wanted to drill down. You know, you'd learn, you know, they're vegan or they're vegetarian or if they like to drink how much they like to drink you know, if they have a dog or a cat all of these things would be very obvious Sweet tooth or not quick, Sweet tooth yeah you know, they buy flour regularly so they probably like to bake you know maybe you can see during the week they, they actually eat quite healthily but then on a Saturday they go in they get an oven pizza a tub of ice cream and a couple of beers so you know they kind of let themselves go a little okay, bit Okay so know. now we're, we're getting to the point where the retailer can send a little push to you I'm going to give you a discount on your ice cream and your pizza at that particular time Yeah well week. I know you come in on a Saturday so make sure you come to my shop I'm going to in the morning give you a little discount because I know your habits now and and they can also use all of that to build a profile of what type of person so someone like you and then they can use that to target other people like you as well so even without your data they, they might have a fair idea of people like you tend to buy this kind of thing so I'm going to give you an offer based on that Adam McGuire from Today with Claire Byrne And on the live line, the squeezed middle, Sinead called Joe about childcare fees and deductions when you keep your child at home. Yesterday, for the 75 minutes, the uh, so-called squeezed middle spoke and revolted about the the cost of living changes, the 1.3 billion package. You've heard numerous government ministers on numerous programmes non-stop. Uh, talking about it, um, Sinead, you, 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 there's one angle because we were talking about the working parents trying to get the children to crash in the morning, wrestling with the kids, trying to get an octopus into a uh, a, a string bag. It's like um, getting the bags in, get the baby, everything, uh, and then belting home at seven o'clock to the awful traffic. And they're not getting anything in this uh, package essay. Sinead, explain your situation with Cresh. It, 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 it reads bizarrely, but, but, but go ahead. Yes, Joe. Yes. How are, how are you? Good, yes, thanks. it reads bizarre. It does read, it reads very bizarre and a nasty surprise um, for a lot of parents yesterday. Okay. My own story is I have a child in after school now. She was in Cresh, which is an after school now. And come January, we were told that we were getting the, the subsidy. So my personal case is I work 13-hour shifts. I work in healthcare. So okay. I work on Monday and a Tuesday and a Friday. I have Wednesdays and Thursdays off. Okay, and your so three 13 keep, hours is the... Yeah, exactly. That's the agreement so I keep that gives my you one off, the 39, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I keep my little one off on one of the days as a treat because I don't see her, especially if I'm working the two days back-to-back. Um, sometimes she could be sick. Sometimes I could just keep her off again on Wednesday. But because... Um, I was given, I think it's 20 hours of the subsidy. It's now being flagged up as non-compliant because I haven't sent her in enough. So I'll be getting a reduction um, for each hour that I don't send her in of a subsidy. So therefore, the less I send her in, the more I end up paying at the end of the month. So basically, in a nutshell, Joe, if you don't send your child in for the maximum amount of allocated hours, they come back to you and they reassess your award. And the maximum amount of allocated hours is how many? Um, it, it, no, it's per hour. So I'd say it would differ for an after school to a creche. You know, if you were in, the, the hours would be like half eight to half six. So if you picked up your child regularly, let's say on your way home at half four or five, you would lose those couple of hours. 
per week per, per month you know what I mean so you'd lose the subsidy kind of, if your child isn't clocked in attending that service they will they will toss it up and then they will take the money off it seems this is, this is what we heard yesterday from the from the um, but are you saying the creche will charge you for hours that your child doesn't attend we we will pay we will pay our set fees regardless yeah, okay. so obviously you don't get a reduction if you take your child out that's that's fair enough that's common enough but the subsidy that they will get from the government the 140 um, 1 euro 40 yeah. an hour will will not be taken off my bill at the end of the month because I haven't had my child sitting in that room for exactly the amount of time that the government has given the award for so they are not taking the 140 off the hours that the parent is charged they're only giving you the 140 for the hours that the child is attending the service. Okay, so um, in terms of an hour, they're saying a child must attend the full hours to benefit from the subsidy. Exactly, yes, exactly. So for, in my own case, I would like to bet, let's say, she was given an award for 20, 20 hours a week. Yeah. She only attended, I think it might have been 13 last week, but she did a day off and a play date, or she might have attended 11 hours another week or 15 hours another week. So all those hours that she hasn't been there have been deducted. Uh, it's been flagged up that going forward she'll be non-compliant. So I've been told she has to attend these hours, a minimum of the hours that we've agreed, or I, I don't know actually what's going to happen in the future, or I, I just won't get the, the funding, or parents won't get the funding. I'm reading from... So it only really works for parents, Joe, if they send their kids in for the entire amount of time. So God, God loves them if they want to actually keep them off for an afternoon a week, especially with shift work. It's incredibly unfair. So what is the cost difference then? If you were to send the, your the child... Award, yeah, go ahead. The, the award from the, the NC, from the government, is 140 deducted off your hourly rate. Okay, so the, so the hourly rate... the Number of hours decreases. Exactly. If, if your child, ha- if, if which we weren't aware of, if your child isn't present in that classroom or in that that room, um, they'll be marked as absent. So you'll lose that. You'll lose that that, that um, amount of money. Now it's not. It's, you know something, Joe. It's not even the money so okay. much. It's 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 the ideology behind it that the, the government will come out and they'll say we're helping working parents. You're getting this money off so on and so forth and then the reality is they if, if your child isn't attending all the time especially for the likes of myself like you see, if I do two days work I'm gone for 26 hours I feel I should be able to take my child collect from school and spend a bit of time with her Well that's Sinead there then Jessica called Joe. Um, I just wanted um, I uh, concur with all the other ladies there around the lack of flexibility offered by the National Child Care Team and sadly, it means that if you have any flexibility in your workday and you decide to collect your child early, as I have done in the recent past, you're actually uh, discouraged and, and uh, uh, penalised financially for doing so. So it's, like it, it's uh, completely anti-family uh, to have that uh, structure in place. And I have lobbied the scheme and I have suggested mm-hmm. that the more reasonable alternative uh, would be for them to... Um, to uh, give you the subsidy of the hours you you uh, pay for as opposed yeah, to the hours yeah. that you attend. And I've gotten nowhere with that suggestion. And also... Well, uh, hang on, uh, just take me back there, Jessica. Where have you gone with that suggestion? So you, you obviously um, haven't made it. Yeah, well, I emailed the National Child Care Scheme okay. um, and several times and I got no response. And then they referred me to the uh, Child Care Committee in Cork 
Okay. I emailed them as well, and they um, actually agreed with my suggestion, but didn't really come back with any um, alternative. They said that they'd mention it, but they didn't really come back to me to, uh, with any, any any satisfaction on it. So you you even think at one forty an hour? You even think on in terms of administration and paperwork, docking parents the subsidy for an hour yeah, here and an hour there because you you got off early or whatever you, you a meeting didn't happen and you were able to run and which you, which you like doing collect yeah. your child early. Yeah. You're you're there's a disincentive to do that. But the disincentive, yeah. the disincentive has to be administered, has to be policed, which well, must be phenomenal. Like all of the, I mean, because we know, and rightly so, anyone that's administering, anyone that's administering this scheme in in the payments area, i.e., from the state, is uh, obviously been paid multiples of one forty an hour. Mm-hmm. So. What is the actual saving at the end of the day when you compute the staff that have to have to administer administer docking one forty here and one forty there and one and right, then yeah. saying if hang on if the if I deduct if if one forty was deducted eight uh, once every week for the last eight weeks that means the child uh, is uh, not not taking up the agreed amount of time and uh, unless the child oh my god. It's oh. insane, Joe. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Jessica on the live line with Joe Duffy. Now, mobiles and Gen Z and the problems they bring to schools. Reporter Brian O'Connell was taking a look at a school in Listowel that has a new policy when it comes to phones in schools. So now, just to be clear from the get-go here, they're not banning phones completely here, are they? No, they're not. And the school wanted to stress they're not anti-technology. But I suppose what the school had noticed was that students were not as present in class. And then during break times, students were inclined to engage with their phones rather than engage with each other. So using technology provided by an American company called Yonder, the school decided to introduce limits and this means, Claire, essentially from the start of school to the last class, phone use is restricted. Although obviously if it's needed in class for teaching, they can still be used. Okay, we heard about Yonder before from you, which you'll remind us about in a minute, I know. Yeah. But going back to what this is, it's a sealed electronic envelope, isn't it? Yes, every student has this electronic uh, envelope. It's it's sealed using a scanner which is placed at the entrance to the school. They can unseal it again on their way home. So teachers can also use a mobile device to unlock the envelopes if the students really need to contact someone or if they're needed for class and they are used. So this has been on the go since September in St. Michael's in Listowel. Uh, the company itself, Yonder, they're on track to provide this service in 50 schools by this September. We're going to hear what students and parents think of it shortly. But first, I was at the entrance to the school with Deputy Principal Liam Hassett and some of the students and they showed me how it all works. And then I popped into the principal's office afterwards to get his take on why this was needed. We're introducing you to the, the Yonder Pouch here in St Miles College. We're the second school in Ireland to go with this initiative. So it's like a post box on the wall here, Liam, just at the entrance to the school and you have a key to it. So Correct, yeah. So in the morning I come in and I open this uh, pouch. Or open the locker, I should say, the unlocking device. What happens is the boys are coming in then. So Luke, do you want to give a, a, an example there? You come in in the morning. So Luke, you have your phone in the bag, right? Yeah. 
And, uh, and this wallet you keep with you all the time, it's an electronic wallet essentially. Yeah, you have to use a magnet to open it. Well, you can open it in the morning, you put your phone in, and you open it when you're leaving. So you have a mobile device then which unlocks the wallets in the class if you need to use yeah, the Yeah, so this is the, this is the mobile device then. So teachers have these mobile devices or else they can access one in the office if they don't have one. John Mulhill, principal of St Michael's College. I'm the longest ever principal in, in Ireland as far as I know, but I still love the job. I'm not a good techie myself, but I, I can see the great benefits of them. It's break time at the moment. I can hear all the students chatting, no one on their phones. We had, a, we had two concerns. One, that the students were using their phones too much, and that led to a lack of engagement at break time. And uh, it's great to hear what I call the chatter. They're talking, they're chatting about football and the premiership. We saw that there was too much using of their phones and there was lack of engagement. But the second thing that we, got, we saw concern was in teaching and learning. Uh, phones going off and they're anticipating texts and that was feeding to uh, teaching and learning. And we looked at this policy and it came from America originally, the under, I think to yourself, a Maradona, a Maradona concert. Uh, she bent the phone. Madonna, I think. I'm not into the, I'm not into the, yeah, into the music world, but they bend the phones. We said we'd go with it, and we're absolutely delighted. Maradona or Madonna, sure, which doesn't matter. I hope John doesn't mind. I have to leave that in. <laughs> and Brian spoke about how the students felt about the policy. I suppose they were hesitant at first when this policy came in in September, as you can imagine. Uh, I think it'll probably be easier if every school locally had this in place. But the students I chatted to all realised this was in their best interest. The phones had become a distraction in class, they all said. So I met with fifth year Luke Power, sixth year Don Lines and Oshin Kelly, who's in third year. And they began clear by telling me how they felt when this policy was brought in. There was a few unhappy people about it, all right. So like, there was, gone, there yeah. was, but we kind of we had no choice in it. And once we kind of got into the routine of things, it wasn't too bad. It kind of keeps keeps you focused in class. Like there's no kind of going to the bathroom on your phone. And to be fair, like it's a huge temptation if the phone is on and in your pocket. Or it is just even pull it out and check the time, and you you check the time several times during classes. Like <laughs> took a lot of getting used to, as as Luke said there, we. Uh, the boys that were in the school since first year and up, we always had our phones. And then coming into sixth year, first day back, massive, massive change. Probably it's probably for the better for the students. They're trying to keep us more focused in class. Definitely, definitely saves a pile of trouble for the teachers and the students because they're not getting as much trouble for pulling out their phones. Like. But I think it's a great way to keep people focused and keep them interested. And I was here at break time when people are obviously chatting to each other. Which yes. may not have been happening before. You, yes, before you might have had a few students who might have just sat in the corner on their phone. and now, now it has led to a lot more interaction between people. It's a sad take on modern life that we have to have something physically taken off us for us to engage with each other the way we used to, isn't it? Yes. Look, modern technology is great. The other side of it is do other ways of communicating. And people have to communicate with each other to make progress. And... When you walk out the gate now at one minute past four and you unlock your digital wallet, there must be a flurry of messages to catch up on, is there? That depends, that depends, that depends. Do you find you're on it more outside of school? That's sort of the question I'm asking. What do you think? Um, 
you you catch up on what you've missed out out during the few hours like but i think it's the same same as it was prior maybe i wouldn't really miss it during the school day either like i wouldn't be looking to go on it i wouldn't need to go on it you said about the break time and stuff like i've seen people absolutely transform like they'd be kind of quiet but now they'd come out of their shells and talk way more and i think that's a brilliant upside to it like i think it's amazing for that like for the more quieter people like brian o'connell from today with claire barn And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, writer of This Hostile Life and more, Malatu Oche Okori, popped into studio to talk to Ryan about her love of the written word, being the ambassador for Ireland Reads this Saturday. Tell us a bit about yourself, where you were born and uh, your voyage through life so far. Oh, wow. Um, um, of course, we already. I was born in Nigeria and I moved to Ireland uh, 16 yeah. 70 years now. Yes. 17 so I've been years living ago. here for 17 Can years. Can I ask you about Nigeria? Oh, yeah. I'd love to know. I know, not, I know little or nothing about your the country of your ask, birth. Okay. Ask me. What do you want to know? I'll tell you what it's I want hot. to know. Yeah, it's hot. Yeah, okay. I like this. You, you can interview me about my curiosity about your country. This is going to be surreal uh, but yeah. lovely. No, I, I know very little. So so give me the ladybird guide to your, to your country okay. of your birth. It's hot. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's noisy. And uh, yeah, it takes a well, it takes a little bit of getting it used to, but once you do, you would probably, um, yeah, they're quite a bit there. Um, yeah, so even if um, I know with, uh, you know, with the way things, life is over there, like it's hard and all of that, cost of living is hard, it's hard for people to survive, the mm-hmm. government, you know, um, all the problems with um, the government and all of that, but then it's still, they're quite um, a bit. Uh, they're quite happy people as well. So, did you come from a big town or population wise? Uh, um, yeah, it's a big town now. Mm. But um, yeah, growing up, it was a smaller town. I I, I was born in Enugu, mm. and um, that's the eastern part of Nigeria, and that's where I'm from. And um, yeah, it was a small town then, but now it's kind of is is you know like everything else in the world. Cities have grown bigger, yeah. towns have grown bigger. Populations so, yeah, are population are... kind of expanded. So yeah. What were you? What were you interested as as a child? Was was it reading, sport? What was? I, oh, no, definitely not sports. <laughs> <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with no, that. No, I appreciate yeah, well, that. That was not my route at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah reading. Um, yes, I, I've always enjoyed reading. I would. Um, I was quite a, a you know a, a good reader growing up, mm. and um, I enjoyed reading a lot. So I, f- I read everything that I could. Find. Were you, were you a library goer? No, but um, I, I would get books. You know, you you swap book with your friends from school. Yeah. You know, you get you going. To, you know, you have friends who get books, and then I, I, as soon as I was able to get books for myself, to have the buying power to. Yeah, stuff yeah. for myself. I said buying books for myself. And at home, what books were on the shelves, or what were you? What were you kind of? No, <laughs> no, I didn't come from that kind of family. Yeah, but okay. then I, so, I, but I don't know where I got the reading book from. You know, so probably just something. I, I don't know. So yeah. I wouldn't say that I was a child that. No, you appreciate know, saw, that. You know, um, someone else reading, but. Uh, and yeah. what sort of books would fall into your hands then, ultimately? Oh, okay. What we had then would be, um, say, the Meals and Boone. I, I think I grew up. I don't know if the, the Meals and Boone. <laughs> The romance novels um, that was uh, growing up, and oh, then right. uh, later I, I, you know, I, I think when I got into secondary school, I so I had like um, older cousins who would have friends who were reading 
um, I think it was Ian Fleming. James, the James Bond. Yeah, so, so you're... I started kind of move <laughs> okay. to that. So anything that I could... Get your hands uh, on. Yeah, what ready. an interesting uh, prism yeah. <laughs> to see life through. James Bond and Mills I and Boone. I know, I know. The detective knows was one of my things. Oh, yeah, yeah, great, great. Okay, and then what age were... No, I'm not actually, don't mind the age. Uh, eventually... <laughs> you could ask. <laughs> well, what I'm curious to know is is when the Irish uh, mm. question arose in your life and, and I don't know how much you want to talk about why you came here or how you got here or what mm. have you. But what I do want to know is, you know, what part of uh, what, what point were you in, in life that you came, that you did arrive in Ireland? Um, uh, well, it wouldn't have been a, a, um, uh, a good point mm. in life, but I think that that, as always, I'm always very hesitant to talk about that. I understand. Because, uh, yeah. Well, we'll keep moving on. You found yourself <laughs> in Ireland. Shall we go with that? Yeah, go on. Okay. Um, and how was that part of your experience? Because you've just described beautifully Nigeria mm. um, and you've described, as you say, a very hot, very uh, different place to where you come to Ireland, which is largely like today. It's beautiful, but it's cold. Uh, how did you adjust? Um, it wasn't that difficult, I think, Um just, you know, our needs change in life. And I think at the point of arrival, that was just what I needed. You know, the quietness, the space, the, you know, just the, the peace, I suppose. Okay. And then, you know, as time went on, the needs definitely changed. Yeah. But at the point of arrival and, and at that time in, in my life, yeah. what what I, I got or what I had was what I needed. I understand. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I was satisfied with that. And how many years were you in direct provision for? Um, eight and a half years. Yeah. And Ryan asked Malatu about her experience in direct provision. Uh, you know, in the beginning, it was uh, for me, it was just... I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have complained about anything. Yeah. You were happy was, just yeah, not to be just, where you had yeah, been. I, yeah, I understand. So I was just happy for a lot of years, but okay. then it kind of went on for a long time. And then you know, as as you you know, I just said before, you know, you, you know, a person's needs starts to change, and you start wondering, you know, yeah. what is going on and all of that. So that, um, in essence, brought in the the dissatisfaction. Yes. I would, I would say. Was it restrictive in terms of what you could do, eat, uh, move around? I mean, it was. Is it like there weren't that? a lot of choices at the time? Yeah. But like um, in her, you know, I, I think the situation. Um, it was new, not just for us as uh, the people who were in direct provision, but for the people running it as well. It was a new experience for them. Okay. So I, I guess, in retrospect, everybody was just trying to do the best that they could and manage things the way that they could. So yeah. I, I suppose with time, you know, systems would change. Evolve. Yeah, and, and evolve. Uh, so I guess now it's changing. It's having those changes that mm. it needs to to, to have. Of course. But, uh, you know, at, the, at that time, we were, we were all kind of, um, and people were just doing things the way that they knew how to. Yeah. Um, yeah. But eight years is a long time and, and it, nothing is new after eight years. Nothing's new really after two or three years. So you would hope that things would evolve in a, a more favourable way. Well, um, I suppose, you know, the system is not just... Now that I have some of the information that I have, it's not only, you know, it's always the politicians or whoever is in government is the easy person to, to blame. But then there are actually the people, you know, and um, sometimes you kind of go with the wave of what the people want. Yeah. I suppose in that sense, um, I guess direct provision is there just because there hasn't been that wave or shift or, or need to 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 stop it or yes. bring it down. And 
I would say that I came to this conclusion with the, 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 the lockdown, you know, with the restrictions and all of that that happened during the lockdown, how quickly things moved, how quickly control was taken, you know, by the government and all the laws and the things that were put yeah. in place, how quickly that happened. So that got me thinking, if this could happen, yeah. if the whole world could come to a stop like that, then there are changes that could be made if we really want yes, to make changes. Yes, if the changes. will is if there. If the will is yeah, there. Yeah, that's so a very good really point. actually the will, not that there, the means to do it is yeah. not there. Yeah, a lot of discussion and no, a little, as, as the song says, a little less conversation, a little more action, please. <laughs> okay, um, your, your days of uh, direct provision are now behind you. Um, tell us about your life now and what, what you're up to. So um, since the uh, publication of This Hostel Life, I've just been around, it's, my life has just revolved around writing and, you know, doing things like this, talking about writing, review writing, yeah. writing. So it's, it's um, yeah, um, that has just been how it's been going for quite a while. So, and uh, which is interesting because it, it, it's, uh, it is a whole new change from how I envisage my life would go. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm thankful for that. T- well. Talk to us about this hostile life. This is the, what uh, brought you to a lot of people's attention. Yeah. Um, for people who haven't managed to read, to, to read it, it's something I hope you're proud of. Actually, it's just three books, three stories actually yeah. in the collection, and um, they're all different. So, just you know, funny enough, it's just one of the stories that was set in the direct provision setting, yes. the rest were you know, um, unrelated, uh, unrelated to direct provision. But then it's um, as a story that um, you know, I wrote them while I was um, in direct provision, I guess that's where the connection came from, and um, it was chosen. I knew Gronya from Skin Press my publisher mm-hmm. um and they she she knew that I, I wrote and we exchanged stories and then she contacted me and said okay we i'm setting up this publishing company and i would like to publish you mm-hmm. and i said okay that's fine and i sent out the stories and that's how this was the life came to be okay um so it's interesting and, and i'm you know i'm happy with the reception it's, it's received so far and ryan asked malatu about the ireland reads project this is this is my thing i'm excited about this and um, that's why i, I you know it's, it's about is this campaign to get people reading Great. and um, it's starting on the um, it's actually the national reading day is on the it's February the 25th okay Saturday, which is this Saturday Saturday morning yes so the campaign is to get the whole country reading for people to squeeze in it's actually called squeezing a read okay? <laughs> Irish, and uh, it says Irish libraries have actually teamed up with publishers and booksellers and authors uh, yeah. for the campaign and the aim is to celebrate reading and all the benefits that they can bring to people their well-being and enjoyment Malatu Oche Okori from the Ryan Tuberty Show and that's it for Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time